0: Hi, welcome back to Open Mind with me, Frankie Bridge. I am joined by Dev Griffin today. Most of you might know him from Radio One. He's been a DJ on there for 11 years. Is yeah, that right?
1: 11 years this year, actually. Yeah, thanks for making me feel really old, Frankie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I feel like, surely, you're not. You're not that much older than
1: me, are you? No, so I'm 35, but yeah. the reason it sounds so long is because I actually started at the BBC when I was 17. So I started on uh, wow. BBC Radio 1 Extra, I was on there for seven years, and then, yeah, Radio 1 for 11 years. So I, I've i literally never done anything else. This has been my only job.
0: <laughs> you did um, Smile for a while, though, That's right, right? yeah, so that's what so I was So was that before, off. Radio or after? After?
1: Yeah, that was fresh out of school. So I would have been 16 when I signed the contract to do Smile. And I did that for 18 months. And during that time I was on telly, radio popped up and I thought, this is much better. I'd rather do this. I don't have to brush my hair when I get out of bed or look good.
0: (laughs) Do you prefer that part of radio of like not being on the screen?
1: Yeah, I I definitely fell in love with the the intimacy of it, that you're kind of connecting with people in a really different way to... On, on telly, it's quite superficial. It's about what you're wearing or if somebody fancies you. And, and it felt like with radio, it was more about the funny things that you might have said or observations that you might have meant... And being a deeply insecure man, Frankie, I was like, yeah, let me do radio because this kind of caters to my ego (laughs) a lot better.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true though, because I think that's why people like podcasts and stuff because people do tend to be a little bit more honest and a little bit more open. I think that when you're not, on camera, like even myself, 100%, if I'm on screen, I'm thinking, oh, what did my face look like then? Or like when I laughed, did I have h chins? Or, you know, like it's silly. You think about different things that you just don't need to when you're on radio. Although I have to say, you guys all have cameras in the studios now.
1: Yeah, that was, that a, really weird, that was a really weird transition. I remember when we started implementing that in the old Radio 1 building that we started to put cameras on. And I think every DJ had the same reaction. It was like, this is literally the reason we got into this job is so we didn't have to be on camera. So then all of a sudden you did have to start worrying about what you look like. But, you know, without going to corporate boy on you, the guys that we do have, the visualisation team, are incredible. And when you have a moment, it might be with a guest, it might be a stupid thing you're doing on air with a caller, to capture that and be able to share it and it not just be a waveform on a... You know, yeah, a, 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 a screen to actually get the reaction on that is quite nice. But yeah, it was a bit of an adjustment to begin with. I
0: okay, yeah, because I feel like I went from like because when it must have been kind of been that long after the beginning of the Saturdays because we used to do like all those radio tours where you go around the country, all different radio stations. And one of the things I loved about it was that. I didn't have to really worry about what I looked like that much. Like for once, yeah. I didn't have to really think about it. And then I remember like a few, the next year we went and did them and they were like, oh, there's cameras in all the studios now. And I was like, what? No,
1: <laughs> this
0: is not what I signed up for.
1: Like, yeah. And then uh, depending, I on it. what, depending on what angle certain cameras are as well so one might be right up next to your face depending on where you're standing next to the desk sometimes one's like positioned a little bit low so it kind of shoots upwards which always makes you look a little bit weird yeah it's a a nightmare (laughs)
0: so they put the angles down that's great (laughs) do you ever have like on radio because I think there's one thing because you're live you're out there you're just chatting away and do you have you had much bad Many bad responses from, from viewers or do you find that people are generally quite nice?
1: I think in the beginning, because I I'd taken over on Radio One. I never got it on one extra, but on, on Radio I always say the difference between the two stations is Radio One, I feel like has so much heritage and so much history I and mean, it's been going for decades. People have literally grown up listening to Radio One. So there's all this I mean, I was I was taken over a show that really good DJs and presenters had had before. There was this long lineage. They had set the standard. So I had to immediately hit the ground running with the same kind of... It was actually really good for me because I'm a little bit lazy. So to walk (laughs) into a job where I was immediately told, you're going to have to sink or swim and you have to get really good really quickly. So to to begin with, yeah, I I would have feedback. It's interesting, the ones that don't bother me is when someone just insults you. So if someone's just like, you're rubbish or you're terrible, you're the worst DJ ever. It doesn't bother me, because there's almost, like, no thought put behind that. It's just the kind of... But it's the people that break you down in detail. Those are the (laughs) ones that, when they say things like... I remember one time somebody said, I find it really interesting that you never talk about your dad on air. Why not? Is that a touchy subject? I thought, that is... That's so much more personal and so much more hurtful than somebody telling me... You're the worst DJ I've ever heard. You're terrible. How did you get a job? That is water off a duck's back because I kind of have this unfaltering confidence inside me. I think it's from being the baby boy in the household and just being always told you're brilliant, you're amazing at everything. (laughs) So even when people are being really mean to me in that way, there's a voice in my head going, nah, you're pretty awesome, dude. Like, Don't pay attention to that. (laughs) But when somebody goes after a really personal thing, because I feel like the trade-off, certainly the way that I like to do my show is I'm going to try and give you as much of myself as possible. I'm going to try and be as honest as possible. So for somebody to take that honesty and almost spin it around and use it mm-hmm. against you. Yeah, those are the ones that were that were hurtful. But I mean, even now I'll get the occasional dig. I actually really like the ones that um, are friendly, like the way that your friends might talk to you. So uh, I don't know, I might mess something up and somebody will text something in and go, uh, that link was bad, but not as bad as you were that last week on Strictly. Do you know what I mean? Stuff like that yeah. actually really makes me laugh because that's how I would talk to my friends and people that I care about is you'd give them gentle ribs. Yeah, yeah you still get it occasionally, but I, I don't know, man. It, it's I don't like to say it comes with the the, with the territory, with the job. It shouldn't, but it just does.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? And it like I suppose over the years you've had to... You, you've had to give up a lot of your time, right? And... Have you found that hard with like friendships and relationships and stuff like that?
1: I've found in relationships it's been really tough, especially dating and like people who don't have a similar job to, it's like people say they understand, but they don't really understand that Not so much now, but certainly when I was getting started and I was trying to make a bit more of a name for myself and I was just saying yes to everything, that sometimes at a moment's notice, you just have to drop everything and go and do something. That might be cancelling plans. That might be not being able to go to somebody's birthday. And that might fly one or two times but if that's your consistent behavior, which is, it's certainly in my case, I'll just come out and say it scatty for want of a better phrase, just <laughs> completely all over the place. Very, very unreliable, super flaky. That is how I've lived a large part of my life. And I i would contribute that to a part of that certainly to my job. It's just, yeah, i I, I wouldn't, my friends, if they were going to describe me would be quite flaky that don't. Don't assume Deb is going to show up or if I do, it's going to be late or chances are I might completely forget about something. But um, yeah, I think the job has, the job has impacted my relationships. I also think the kind of attention you get it has also been a bit of an issue in in, in some relationships. I, not so much now, but again when I was starting out, I really wanted to perpetuate the image that I was this young single guy like a bachelor out in <laughs> the town even if at the time I you know there was certainly you know large parts of when I uh, was on radio one where I was in a relationship. but that's quite a difficult thing to explain to somebody who again doesn't have your job, why you would be more appealing to an audience if you were mm. single compared to it, if you were, in a sh- I, 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 even now, like being much older, that does sound bonkers to me. But yeah. at the time, it just, that's just how it was.
0: It's true though. It is true though. It just instantly makes you more interesting. I guess, uh, yeah, that's weird. And I think as well, I I completely, I've spent my life the same. Like my job is, has been 24, seven, 365 days of the years. I get like, wedding invites or party invites and I could never really say yes for definite or no for definite and now being on the other side of not being in a band I still find that quite difficult yeah. and I don't know why like I find it really hard to commit to things quite far in advance because I'm just not used to it yeah but I think if that's a way that you've been living even when you don't necessarily need to that's just how you've lived your life
1: yeah the, the concept of You know, for example, uh, I've got friends who... and My my, my sister does it all the time. She'll go on this amazing holiday that she's been planning for two years. And I think, how did you... Whereas I'm like, are we going on holiday? Let's go next week. Okay, we'll all book it last minute. And, yeah, sure, it might be a little bit more expensive and you're not likely to get a deal. But that is very much how my my mind... I, I wouldn't plan a holiday, say, for summer next year I mean no one's going on holiday next year but that's never even occurred to me to do that I don't know what I'm going to be doing next summer I don't know if I could commit to that time what if a big job came up and something that I really wanted to do and then had to cancel the holidays and you're absolutely right even now that my life isn't as as hectic as it was when I was trying to get a little bit more established yeah my, my brain still very much works that way
0: Yeah, I think it took Wayne, even even now he'll try and be like, right, should we book the summer holiday for next year? And I'm like, yeah, uh, no, because we don't know. We don't know what's going (laughs) to happen next year, do we? Like, I still find that really hard. And we've had things that we've had to cancel, like, last minute because a job, like you say, has come in that I really want to do. Do you find that stressful, like, waiting for, like, I know you have your consistent job, but waiting for other things to come in or do you feel like you're kind of past that now?
1: Man, so I I feel like I'm a bit of uh, a bit of a crossroads now, where my so just to like fill you in really quick because it's only like been announced recently, I'm I'm going to be leaving the BBC. I know
0: you are,
1: and that's a huge step for me, but something I feel is so necessary. But here's what the terrifying thing is for me at the moment: is the landscape of everything is so different to when I first started. There was no. I was still going to a record shop and buying physical records when I'd started radio. Now nobody does that. Podcasting wasn't a thing when I got started. So now what I'm really interested in is kind of building something of my own, rather than relying on somebody to give me a contract or to offer me a job. I would. I'm much more interested in going. Well, I've learned what I think is quite valuable during my time at the BBC, I feel like I've done it at the highest level. Now mm. my challenge is, okay, could I still be as good doing my own thing? But I've certainly been at, at, at that point in my life where you've got your fingers crossed that, oh my God, please, I hope that a good job comes through this month. And oh man, if I could, because it, it's such a weird chain of events where you do one show and uh, all of a sudden that opens up the gateway to do loads of other things. I'll tell you a story actually about, I won't say what show it was for, but he was an executive, obviously in charge of booking presenters. And we had a meeting together. And before we even sat down, he said to me, I'll level with you, Dev. We wouldn't be having this meeting right now if you hadn't been on MasterChef, but you've done that show. And now my audience is going to know who you are. So do you know what? We're going to give you a shot doing this, uh, doing this project. And some people might find that kind of blunt, but to me it was so refreshing because it was maybe one of the first times I'd really understood how the industry works that, oh, of course, you have to have a certain level of profile to do other things. But breaking through that first initial, you you know, people who book these kind of things, they don't want to put you on a show and have most of the audience go, I've never heard of this person before. Who are they? What have they done previously? But I, I feel quite privileged to be in a position now where I'm not, you know, praying on the next job like, please, please, can something come through? I I think I've worked hard enough to grant myself just a little bit of breathing space. Not a lot. You never want to get complacent, but just a little bit.
0: And is that are you? Are You're not? Uh, I don't know. Are you scared or are you just excited about the new chapter?
1: Oh, I'm I'm definitely scared. I'm I'm scared that um, all the things that I think I'm capable of in my brain to actually do it is another thing I have I've had all these ideas for years and things that I really want to do and it's almost like if I could coach somebody else through it this is what you need to do and these are the people you (laughs) need to speak to I could do that but when it comes to myself and my own self-motivation that I've always struggled with I've never had somebody tell me you have to do this thing or like, that's it. I, I, I very much had to become my own hype man and my own coach. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely scared that uh, it, it, this does feel like a sink or swim moment for me, but I'm also incredibly competitive and I, you know, I, I feel like I have that uh, spirit in me. So I am really excited that this is a brand new venture for me and Like, I don't know what's going to happen as well. That is, I guess, what excites me. But uh, definitely a a mixture of the two. My therapist described it the other day as it's like jumping off a cliff when you've only, in theory, learned how to fly. So for years in your mind, you've been planning out how you fly, how far you spread your wings. And now you've come to that point where you're going to do it. You still have to jump, you know? And even though you know in your mind, I know how to do this, you still have to make that initial jump. So, yeah, that's, Yeah. that's how I'm feeling right now.
0: God, they're so brave. I don't know. There's not many people. I don't think that would be brave enough to do it. So I hope it pays off. I'm sure it will. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's gonna. It's gonna It's gonna happen. You mentioned there that you have a therapist. Have you had a therapist for long? Like, what made you get one in the first place?
1: So this is this is quite a mad story. Um, when I did the the SAS show, they offered. Well, they didn't offer. They basically were like you kind of have to talk to a psychologist because oh,
0: yeah, when you do a show, they give you someone, don't they? Right. Know.
1: There's a there's a, a certain duty of care that they uh, that they offer you, and the psychologist that I spoke to was so great at you know putting the experience in context for me and the bit because it was actually most of it was incredible, but there's a chunk right at the end of that SAS show that was so deeply unpleasant for me. It was going to ruin everything else. It got so much inside my head. Everything felt so real, particularly around, you know, that was such an incredibly bonding experience for everyone. And then there was this moment at the end where all of a sudden you weren't allowed to comfort people. You weren't allowed Mm. to tell them it was going to be all right. There were a point I could hear all these people that I'd grown to care about so much. I could hear that they were in pain and in discomfort. And immediately after I left the SAS compound, there was, a psychologist there, to, she, she's the first person I had contact with, mm. who took me to one side and we just sat in a room whilst I ate a burrito, and drank ginger ale, and she just, <laughs> uh, you know, she just kind of explained the whole situation and what I would be going through, and that was really helpful for me. Fast forward a year, or maybe a bit longer, when I signed up for Strictly, they also offered counselling and therapy, and immediately I said, yes, I, I, I benefited it from before, I want to do this now. And what I thought it was going to be about doing the therapy was about the show, about the pressures of being on a big show like that, about the interest from press and from the public. I thought, oh, I'll do it because it's going to help me deal with that. But actually what I realized after just one session was, hey, I got all these questions about when I was a kid and these weird things happened and <laughs> Um, you know, oh, I, I, I get really moody because of whatever. Where does that come from? And it, it just, I just found it to be incredibly... He- I mean, even now, like, after, months and months after the show had finished, I got voted off the show. I continued therapy. I'd stopped just before lockdown, and I've just started again with a new person a couple of weeks ago. So, um, I, I mean, I, I say to anybody who can afford it to... get get therapy. I I, I thought initially going into it, I'd say to somebody, here's all my problems, can you fix me? Mm -hmm. But actually what it is, it's kind of given me a bit of distance from some of my thoughts, allowed me to process a lot of things that are going on. And also that reminder that I am not my thoughts, just because you feel a certain way one day that's not necessarily going to last or there's reasons for all of these things. Uh, uh, Recently I've done... um, something called, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to remember the name of it, but basically there were, my therapist was trying to pinpoint where do I physically hold some of my trauma? And by talking through how I felt, and he felt like he'd pinpointed where I hold that, because what he'd explained to me is that we hold a lot of our trauma like physically in ourselves, in our brain, it becomes part of us. I had this like, really weird moment where I'd kind of regressed all the way back to being a, a, a sort of like four or five-year-old kid on a council estate that I found terrifying. And this feeling of fear, it's funny, we come back to fear, this feeling of fear and either not being accepted or not quite fitting in, being a bit weird. I've carried that with me my whole life. And even though it serves me really well now as an adult to be a bit weird and a bit different, certainly as a kid, I really felt that like, oh no, what if I use the wrong word in front of the kids and they don't think I'm cool so I, I just think it's like a, an incredible thing to do, if you can, if you can either afford yeah. it or you're sort of in the place where you're you're able to do that because it, it, it does open up a lot. I mean, you open up one door, then you open up seven. But mm. yeah, I, I, for me, it's been incredibly beneficial.
0: And you remember feeling that way at the age of five of being aware of what other people feel of you, about you. That's mad.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, in, in particular, so my things that pop up quite a lot is, yeah, not feeling like I don't fit in. I've always felt different from, from everybody else. And uh, like part of what I think is, it, it, it's, it's funny, I mentioned to you this before about having that unfaltering confidence because I've always been told that I'm amazing and you're great. And where my mum completely gassed me up on that side, what she never did is say, sit me down and explain to me the complications and implications of say, being mixed race. And, like, having my identity never really explained to me, it gave me this complex of, like, when we moved from Hackney to, say, a predominantly white area, I thought the reason everyone was looking at me is because they thought I was so handsome. Or they thought, oh, who's that, like, cool, quirky kid over there? (laughs) Oh, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like, you know, that's obviously my mum's attempt at shielding me from what could be quite a brutal world. But actually, it gave me this weird complex growing up where... um, yeah. Again, it's weird that in one way it served me really well. It gives me now this ability. I can stand up in a room full of people or throw the mics up and talk to millions of people and not be like, "Oh my God, what if they don't like me?" But at the same time, it's also given me a lot of things like, "Oh yeah, I've never really explored those parts of my identity and yeah. kind of what makes me like who I am."
0: Do you think that's because? So was your was your was your mum white?
1: Yeah, that's what. So I, do you
0: think that was her way of? I don't know, Maybe she didn't feel like she needed to draw attention to the fact that you were mixed race, but maybe by avoiding that, that, you know, left you with loads of questions and not being aware of that you would feel different.
1: Yeah, so my, and I'm sure a lot of other people could identify with this as well. Like my mum's way of dealing with a lot of things was to not talk about it. So whether it's race or sex, sex was the biggest taboo in my house Growing up, like I can remember, sat there watching TV, and if two people kissed, <laughs> it was that's ah, pornography. Turn it off. Like so, even from a young kid, I was thinking, oh, what is this thing? I'm not supposed to know about." And and actually, that's given me. That's given me a like. I, I felt like certainly as a teenager, I was too interested now in kissing and sex. You and, were like, "What is this yeah, thing? Yeah, I want to yeah. do it." You, the one thing you want to do as a as a young teenager is the thing that your parents tell you you're not supposed to do. So, I mean, thank goodness I had an older sister who I can remember the day. I, I remember us being probably about eleven, and we were on a caravan holiday in Canvey Island. That's that was like a little thing. And my sister had this book on the birds and the bees, for want of a better phrase, and how boys are different than girls and how it works. And she sat down with us and said, has anyone ever told you guys about sex and the difference between boys and girls? Me and my twin year old 11-year-old sister were like, no. Uh, and <laughs> remember, she sat down and flicked through the book and explained everything. And obviously we giggled and thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever. But I mean, you know, it, thank goodness it wasn't the other way. And where my mum was raised... Irish Catholic where they never talk about sex the way that affects you is you don't know about it so you don't know things like oh if you have sex like you get pregnant if you don't use condoms for example (laughs) or you know uh, it's weird that in in one way by trying to not talk about it and not address it I get what my mum was trying to do but it sort of works out the opposite Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
0: But I think a lot of people do that with most, like my mum, I remember, like we'd never had the sex chat ever and I think even at school we didn't even really they didn't really do anything about it but I remember my mum trying to approach about me going on the pill and like the way she did that was like she was in the car so she didn't have to really give me any eye contact she was driving and she was talking about how her friend's daughter is going on the pill and like was just kind of like chatting around it and I was like mum is this your way of saying like are you on the pill do you want to go on the pill kind of thing and she was like oh I don't know I didn't know how to talk about it but now I'm a parent like I completely get it as well. I'm like, I don't really know how I would approach that. And and I think they do come from a generation of just brushing things under the carpet. You know, yeah. like there's been loads of stuff in like, my, not just my immediate family, but my family as a whole where I've noticed growing up how, you know, when you're younger, you don't really notice, but as you get older, how they talk around things or there's like the elephant in the room that no one's talking about. And I think that is a generational thing. And I think now we are kind of learning that that's not really the way to live, like how everyone's talking more and more about mental health and race and everything, you know. I do feel like the conversation's opening up more, but I think it's still really difficult to kind of know what to do. And I suppose, like, especially, and you can help me out here, like with race, as, like, a white woman and, like, with two kids, I want my kids to learn and I want them to grow. And I think I... You know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm like I'm not racist, so it's fine. And I think a lot of people feel like by not talking about it and not drawing attention to it, that that was the right way to deal with it. Like, like loads of people say, "Oh, I've never seen color," or "We are all the same." But then that's not necessarily. We're kind of learning now that people are saying, "Well, we don't want that. Yeah. We want to be seen." That's not what we're saying. So, I don't, what's your take on that?
1: Yes, yeah, so I, I had um, I had this thing with. I used to co-host my radio show with uh, Alice Levine and I had this thing a few years ago where somebody was sending me weird fan mail and I remember I got this huge package of fan mail and I was kind of like going through it. I didn't really know what to do. And Alice said to me, are you worried that this person might wait for you one time outside of work? And I was like, no. Said at, I said, at worst, if I couldn't physically overpower them, I could run away. I could definitely outrun who's, whoever's sending me loads of fan mail. And she said, oh, that must be nice. And it was, this is only 18 months ago. That's the first time I've ever considered how different the implications of someone giving you unwanted attention, how different it is if you're a man and if you're a woman. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm I'm raised by women. I like to think that I have at least like a decent understanding of what it's like to be. But that was a realisation. No, I don't. Like, I don't even, I can't even begin to understand what that would feel like to be scared to walk down the street on your own. uh, You know, when it's late at night that you have to, you know, maybe plan what route you're going to go home slightly differently, depending on what time of day it is that if somebody sends you a weird text or says something weird to you on public transport, do you need to, you know, take that further? And it's the same with, identity and 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 with race that yeah before that conversation around oh i don't see color and oh we're just all the same now i like that it shifted to oh no actually we need to recognize all the different implications and all of our differences but also a lot more listening to everyone's personal experience because that's one of the only ways i feel like we can learn is by listening and so Again, for somebody like me, that uh, incident over there with Alice, just her saying that, I like to consider myself very open minded. I try and read as much as I can. I certainly try and take in both sides in an argument. That was such a huge realisation for me that what I thought I understand compared to what I actually understand.
0: Yeah, that's, I've never actually really thought of that either, actually, even like... You know, like as a woman myself, yo, I do think all those things when I'm out and about or if people say things, and obviously being in the public eye, had inappropriate things said or whatever. And there is that difference. And although, I don't know, maybe some women would say, no, we are the same, and we're just as strong, and we're just as this, and not saying we're not. But you're, you're right, a hundred percent. I wouldn't feel comfortable in that situation, like you said. Oh, I wouldn't even give it a second thought. I'd feel safe, and I could just run or whatever. I probably wouldn't have that same, same thought process. So, yeah, it's mad. But I'm the same. I love learning from other people. I find it so fascinating hearing other people's stories, and 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 how things affect them. And I I agree, I feel like that really is the only way that we can learn about anything. You know, it's how mental health has become such a big thing now because so many people are talking about it. So many people are opening up and telling their stories and everyone's experience is different. And like you said, your experience is gonna be so different to someone else's.
1: I feel like I'm in a bit of a bubble being in the media and the music industry and, and and like on radio and stuff that we're certainly maybe a little bit left-leaning and our thoughts and views on the world are going to be completely different to, say, I don't know, somebody who lives in a rural, rural town that they've grown up in all of their lives. They're going to have very different views on the world. I don't think my views are more valid than, than that person, but I, I also think it's it's important for us to both be able to have a conversation and and, and, and share things. Like, uh, it still baffles me that some people feel that they're able to weigh in on certain conversations. But, uh, yeah, uh, equally, I think both sides need to be listened to and there needs to be an open forum for discussion. We shouldn't jump down people's throats when someone gets something wrong or says the wrong thing. I feel like people should always be able to apologise and have a conversation.
0: I feel like that's quite a big thing these days, though. It's become, like, this takedown era of like you make one mistake you say one wrong thing or or you say something that someone doesn't necessarily agree with or and it, and it I think it makes people certainly in our situations or whatever It it makes it really hard for you to be able to speak and have these conversations because you're so terrified of saying the wrong thing all the time, and I think I think I don't think people should be taken down and completely wiped out, their jobs removed, and their lives completely changed. And I I, I think that gives a wrong message to young people that you can't ever make a mistake.
1: Yeah, it it seems it seems bonkers to cancel someone forever for something that you might have said or done, especially when that person is showing remorse. And I, I, again, I feel like most things you're you should be allowed to apologise for and mm. be allowed to... continue. It, 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 it's such a... I don't know if um, you read that book, uh, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by... Uh, I think it's John Ronson. No, I and haven't. It, it, there's so many... In- there's one example in there that I think about quite a lot, and it was a famous story a few years ago. It was about a woman who was flying to Africa from the States, and the tweet that she put out to her 200 followers was, I'm off to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS... LOL, just joking, I'm white, okay? Terrible joke, but it's also just to her little 200 followers who, you know, (laughs) maybe she jokes like that all the time, maybe that's her type of humour, whatever. By the time that she landed, I forget where she was visiting in Africa, but by the time she had landed, that had been shared and retweeted and blogged on thousands of times. And by the time she landed, she got fired from her job and become internet famous and cancelled. And it just seems yeah. like such a disproportionate reaction to the thing that she had done. Again, terrible joke, really awful taste. but I,
0: Uneducated. Right, but I don't <laughs> think
1: that you should lose your job, never be allowed to work again, completely cancelled it. it. That feels a bit... It's when now it's not enough for people to catch somebody out or say, you you did this wrong thing, you said this the wrong way. Now that extra step of I want to make sure that you're never able to work again, that you get all your uh, contracts cancelled, and it ruins your whole life. That I feel like is a that feel like is a really dangerous territory for us to be in. Yeah. But maybe that's how I feel. maybe it needs to go that far that way before we kind of recenter and remember. All right, okay. As long as somebody is showing genuine remorse, they, you should be allowed to apologize for things. I sound, yeah, like I, I'm, someone... I sound like I'm setting myself up for, like, a big scandal to come out. Yeah, about what are me, you I'm just like...
0: about to say? What are you about to do? You should be allowed
1: to apologise, guys.
0: <laughs> Is there something you want to tell us? <laughs> no, but I completely agree, and I feel like it's, like, a really scary time. Like like, like I said, like, with my kids, we spend our whole life telling them, you know, you, you mess up and you apologise, and then... You know, as you get bigger, sometimes just an apology isn't enough and it takes more. But as 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 kids, that's what you're taught. You, you make a mistake, you apologize, you either make up for what it is that you've done or you are disciplined in some sort of way and then it's fine, you move on. Whereas now I feel like we're teaching people, you have to be perfect all of the time. You have to know all of the facts yeah. of everything. You can't say anything unless you know you're 100% right and if your opinion or whatever doesn't agree with, of the population then you're going to be taken down and I think that's a really scary territory to get into and I think it's really you know giving the wrong message to young people and just adding to the pressure that they are already under to be good at everything and to kind of have this 365 degree of their life where everything's perfect and you're good at everything I think it's just a shame. Do you feel like a lot of your awareness has come from therapy and like talking through all these things
1: my therapist before I had therapy was my big sister Kelly who is my she's the same one who showed me the book about the birds and the bees and actually with a lot of problems that I had growing up my sister was my go-to and sometimes this this is what I I like about therapy is they're very neutral so you might pour your heart out to them and they'll just go "Mm -hmm." and how does that make you feel and you almost, you almost like, no, give me a hug or something or tell me that it's going to be all right. And I remember uh, I had a really bad breakup when I was probably about 20 or 21. And it was all my fault. I was a horrible grunt bag. And um, I was heartbroken. And I had gone to my sister, crying my eyes out. She knew the whole situation because she was quite close to my girlfriend at the time. She knew everything that happened. I was crying my eyes out. And I was like, oh, you know, I just don't know what I'm doing. She went, well, you know, that's... That's pretty rubbish, babe, but, you know, you sort of deserve it. So I'm here for you if you want to talk, but, um, yeah, you'll get over it. And, you know, she deserves better. And I was like, why aren't you on my side? But, but, like, looking back at it, that was exactly what I needed. I didn't need someone to tell me what I needed to hear. I needed good advice and someone who was very much there for me, but not just going to cater to my ego. And I, I, I noticed a lot of times through... Therapy now, I'm able to talk to my therapist in a way that I can't talk to other people because when you talk to friends or you talk to your family, you are trying to save them a little bit or or, or, or rather give them the PR spin of how you might be feeling. So mm. if someone says, even if you're very close to them, how are you? Ah, oh, do you know what? Not great this week. These few things are bothering me, but uh, do you know what? It's fine. It might actually not be fine. You might actually be feeling, no, I'm pretty devastated and stuff's awful at the moment. and. I just need somebody to talk to, but you don't want to almost unload all your problems on that person because everyone's dealing with what they got to deal with. So having that space in therapy to talk to a neutral person, to be able to completely unload with no judgment, no kind of almost, almost sympathy. I don't want sympathy when I'm in that space and I, I, I'm talking in that way. During the time that I had stopped therapy for, it was like basically since the start of lockdown until a couple of weeks ago, all of that had really built up inside me. And even though I was talking to my friends and my sister and I, I was, I felt like I was sharing that, it wasn't in the same way. And immediately after I'd started therapy again, I felt like my shoulders went from up beside my ears to just drop. Like, oh, that was so... Cathartic for me to be able to go, this is everything I'm feeling right now, and someone to go, oh, that's normal. And this is why you feel that way. And why don't you work on this this week to try and make yourself feel better about it? And really distancing yourself from your thoughts. I, I, I think during lockdown, more than any other time I could think of, that stillness to be able to just sit in your own thoughts is not always good to just not yeah. have any distractions, not any, you know, you can't go out and just get smashed with mates at the weekend or, you know, like go meet them at the pub or, you know, not having that same distraction has been, yeah, it's been on on, on one hand incredibly positive for me because it's allowed me to visualize certainly that what we were talking about before about never forward planning it's for the first time ever, certainly with my career, I'm now going, Oh yeah, this is what I want in the next five years and 10 years. But yeah, I, I, I honestly don't know where I would be in that headspace without having therapy.
0: I always say to people, it's like they're not emotionally attached to you and you're not emotionally attached to them. Because I think sometimes, like you said, you go to a friend or family member and you know that they're coming from a place of love most of the time. Sometimes it's tough love, like with your sister and you need that. But they're still emotionally yeah. attached to you whereas I think with a therapist like you say they're so neutral and they can just see it from an outside point of view and a general view and that's why I think it's so great you've gone from like a few different therapists why was that just circumstance or was that choice because I think people get I had a therapist for a really long time I, I mentioned it in my book like I went to a therapist and I thought you know, this is the person I've been given, this is who I'm with and I just have to stick with them. And then actually after a while I was like, this isn't really working for me with this person. And, you know, I had that luxury because I was paying, I was lucky enough to pay for it. So I went to someone else and now that person I completely clicked with and I've stuck with for years, but I didn't realise that was a thing. I thought you got given your person (laughs) and you had to get on with it and it worked out. Like, is that why you moved around or was it just...
1: it's it's so funny you, you you say that because I feel like that about almost anything. If it's a, a restaurant that I go to, my local shop, a company or a brand that I like, there's some part in my brain that goes, "I need to be loyal to this for the rest of my life." I've picked my thing, and this is like a <laughs> like a, it's like it's a football team or something. You're gonna go, no, this is the one I've gone for, and that's it. it the, all the therapists I've had have been incredible but i have seen the the different areas in, in in which maybe they understand me a little bit better or where we might be sort of at odds so for example i've had a middle-aged white woman who was my therapist for a while and she was incredible with discussions around my mom and uh, when i where i grew up but then Now, uh, the therapist that I have is a black man who's not that much older than me. They both have such different perspectives on life. There's some things, as I'm explaining things to him, I can tell by the way, you know, he's nodding his head, he knows exactly what I mean. I mean, even just the differences between them being a man and a woman, being like, you know, middle aged and like Mm -hmm. slightly older than me, uh, black and white, even culturally. I think uh, he has grown up in the States, for example. But to not feel like there's only one type of therapy or there's just one type of therapist for you. It's been really helpful for me, even just breaking away from that. I have to remain loyal to this one thing forever mentality. So, yeah, I I don't know if it's been necessarily a conscious choice to do that, to try out a bunch of different therapists, but um, yeah, it's definitely helped and, I think uh, that's a, a really important thing that you, you touched on. It. You said that you talked about in your book that you think, "Oh, well, this is just the one that's been allocated to me, so I've got a, I've got, I've got to stick with this." No, you definitely have to find someone that is is right for you and that you 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 feel good about.
0: Yeah, definitely. And how have you found like lockdown and everything? I think like obviously we went into the first one, everyone's a bit like. Okay, this is rubbish, but we didn't know how long it was going to be. And then we were all freed, and now we're back again. Like, how do you live alone?
1: I have a flatmate, but uh, he's like barely ever here, so it's quite sweet for me. I get the I get the place to, to myself most times. The first lockdown, I went full panic mode weeks before we'd even gone into proper lockdown. I remember showing up on some jobs. I was doing recordings and stuff, and I was showing up going, why is everyone being so calm? The end of the world is coming. Like, don't you understand they're gonna shut all of this down? Like we're just carrying on like normal. I, to give you an idea of where my head was at, two weeks before we went into lockdown, I bought two 10-kilogram bags of rice. They're still in my airing cupboard, and a oh, and a gas, like a camping gas stove cooker, because I was like, they're gonna cut the electric. <laughs> like, it's gonna God. be no gas. I went. It's gonna basically turn into the apocalypse. And I think because I went so far that way, once we'd gone into lockdown and we would worked out what it was like, and I remember realizing, going, "Oh, it's not that bad." I think I'd gone so far that way when I realized <laughs> it was nothing like that. I was completely fine.
0: You've watched too many. Films. I really
1: have. <laughs> I really have. I watched too many episodes of The Walking Dead, and yeah, I- yeah. It's just it's a, it's affected me that way. But um, the first part of lockdown, I actually loved. I loved just Mm. being in my house, not having to go out and do things and being able to work from home for maybe the first two or three weeks. I loved it. I downloaded some games on the Xbox, just like, you know, bought a couple of bottles of rum. This is going to be great. But then very soon after that, yeah, after that two, three week period, I started to feel like I need to get out. I need to do stuff. I miss being in the studio. I missed hanging out with my friends. I missed just, going out and doing stuff. So it was a bit of a struggle for the rest of the time.
0: And then what about this one? This one's quite different, isn't it, really?
1: I can't work it out because it's like almost fake lockdown. So it's not like how it was before. Lockdown before was you can't go to work and you you have to stay inside your house. Whereas now, okay, you can go to work if you need to. And there wasn't that weird thing about, oh, you're allowed to go out, but only if you're going to go for a run. So... It's, it's, it's weird it's almost like well we survived the first one and that was way worse than this so i guess it's okay but then i've also learned it sounds so cliche but taking taking it one day at a time not trying to forward plan too much again going back to what we were talking about before that you are going to have some good days you are going to have some weird ones but i've Really trying to get into my routine at the moment. I'm all about my walks. Oh, I love a walk at the moment. (laughs) An early evening walk, that's my thing. Like, just after it's got a little bit dark, I love to just, you know, pick a different direction after I leave the house. That's where I really gather my thoughts. That's where if I haven't done anything for the day, at least I've done my walk.
0: Do you like
1: listen to music or do you just like being in the quiet? Podcasts are my big thing that I like, to, yeah. I like to listen to while I go for a walk. Yeah. It's sort of like, if they're about 45 minutes, an hour mark, I almost, it's, it's so odd. I almost never listen to music unless, like as well as, you know, radio stuff, I might be at the studio, like referencing stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. But I've noticed how much that's affected my mood at the start of lockdown, I'd be blaring my music every single day. But I I don't know. It's something about more than ever now this year, I've just really appreciated just listening to a conversation, listening to people talk. It's almost been comforting. I swear
0: that comes with age. I swear. (laughs) Because I honestly, like I used to always only listen to music and then... You know, like when you used to get into um, an Addison Lee or something to go to work and they always used to have LBC <laughs> on and I used to like want to strangle them. I used to be like, oh, so boring what are they're doing. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it now. Like anything with a discussion on, I might not agree with it. I might not. But there's just something about that rather than obviously I still love music, but honestly think it's age, I think, honestly.
1: It's either age <laughs> or lockdown. It's something about like this year in particular know. that, yeah, podcasts just hit a little bit differently this year. Um, and like you say, about learning stuff, I mean, I've got all sorts of really niche, weird podcasts that I'll dip in and out of. I was listening to one the other day that just, it just does 30-minute episodes on Revolutions, so, like, different revolutions that have, like, ha- happened uh, in in history. And I can't remember any of it. I can't rattle off any facts or figures to, to you, but I, th- <laughs> I think I'm getting smarter listening to it. I'm not sure that.
0: <laughs> Well, not if you right. don't remember any of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you can't answer any questions in a pub quiz, then it's not working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. I feel like I could literally talk to you for ages. It's funny, like... I was really quite nervous when I was when we started because I was like, you're the person that asks all the questions, <laughs> not me. Like, this is your job. You're good at this stuff. So thank you. Thanks for being so honest and talking about everything. I um, actually found loads of what you said really fascinating and I think loads of other people will. Oh, and, thank you. Um, no, it's
1: been really... Uh, I wish cathartic. you so much
0: luck. Thank you. With whatever it is that you're doing next, I think you'll be fine. Thank
1: you very much. I'm really excited about it as well. <laughs> thank you.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Deb. Nice one. Now remember, this podcast is all about encouraging us to be open and have those hard but important conversations. If you're struggling with your mental health, the best thing you can do is to talk to someone. If you'd rather chat to someone impartial, there are plenty of resources and support provided by the mental health charity Mind. That's mind.org.uk